0: Now, it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Vanessa Gregoriadis. Vanessa Gregoriadis is a contributing editor at the New York Times Magazine and Vanity Fair, specializing in pop culture, youth movements, and crime reporting. She is a National Magazine Award winner and has been featured on MSNBC, CNN, Dateline, and Investigation Discovery. She's also the author of the new book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Vanessa Gregoriadis. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out to talk about this <laughs> um, very timely topic. Um, I am going to mention Harvey Weinstein tonight, but I will not be talking about him exclusively. Um, so... What do we think about when we think about college sexual assault? Maybe we think about what we see on the local TV news, right? We see two women who are walking. Their backs are to us. Um, they're on a shadowy path. The shadows of the trees are on the concrete and also, like, all around them. And they have their backpacks on. And they're walking from the library to their dorms. And it's, you know, there might be, like, a rapist is about to come get them with a knife, Right? or we might think about a frat brother who has, you know, all week been planning which girl am I going to take these roofies and put in her drink this Friday night, right? And my brothers and I are going to take her upstairs. This is something we do each week and we're going to gang rape her. Okay, so my contention is that neither of these things are the reality about college sexual assault. Certainly, we know that Strangers and ski masks and students being afraid on the way from the campus center to the dorm, from musical theater practice to acapella group, that is not helping anybody. That's not really what's happening. We have the data to show that. In terms of roofies, you know, most people who study this say, look, you know what the date rape is drug is? The date rape drug is alcohol. I'm not saying roofies don't exist. I'm not saying people don't use Xanax to get what they want. But what my contention is, is that what's happening on college campuses has a lot to do with the meaning of consent, the need for us as a culture to change that meaning for a new generation, a new generation's demand that we change it now as well. As we all know, we're in California where there's an affirmative consent standard. Yes means yes, so no means no is not good enough. Silence is not consent. You have to get something from your partner doesn't have to be super enthusiastic, but it would be nice if it was like a little bit enthusiastic. So (coughs) maybe we all haven't had that experience of being afraid on campus, or maybe we haven't had the roofie experience, but I think all of us could probably say that during our college years, something happened that did not sit right with us. Something happened where we felt we did not consent. So Uh, I'm going to start talking about that in this lecture. Um, I'm going to focus on those experiences where the line between consensual and non-consensual used to be and where the line is going. And I'm also going to talk about how universities are involved in making that line extremely bright today. Um, And as I said, the the state of California, um, essentially rewriting the rules of sex for college students. And in that effort, are we going to rewrite the rules of sex in America? Because right now, the rules on college campuses, particularly in California, are not the rules in the rest of America, right? So, coercive sex, you know, are you an undocumented, documented immigrant and your boss at a cafe says, if you don't have sex with me, I'm gonna tell ICE about you. Okay, that's, you know, That's like kind of textbook coercive sex. But how else are we defining coercive sex and non-consensual sex on college campuses today that could really have like a significant impact on Americans' private lives going forward? So I began my research for this book in 2014. Um, It was the summer of 2014 and I started to look into sexual assault where I live, which is New York City. And um, I thought, well, what am I going to write about in colleges? Okay, well, I guess I'll write about Columbia, because Columbia University, there had been a bunch of students coming forward, and they said the university did me wrong, didn't take my case seriously, my predator walks this campus, it's not fair, right? And there were a few of these people, so I went around and kind of systematically met with each of them, and I met with this woman named Emma Solkowitz, who some of you may know um as her you know kind of nickname which she doesn't like but has become a nickname which is mattress girl so i met with her at a cafe and we had um iced tea and i talked to her about her story and she told me what had happened um very pragmatic person very rational person very serious person um you know she'd been thinking she was going to major in mechanical physics she got really interested in art performance art, Um, she was kind of on that train, and as we were talking, she said, let me tell you something. I have this mattress, and I'm going to carry this mattress around. It's going to be an art project, but once school starts in a month, I'm going to carry that mattress around Columbia's campus until Columbia expels the boy that I think raped me or until graduation. And I kind of laughed and I said, that is great idea. I mean, that is that is incredible. I mean, what is that idea? That is really very strange. But OK, you know what? Give me a call when you do that, because I would like to check it out. Maybe if I have nothing else to do that day, I'll take the subway up to Mooringside Heights and I'll check it out. Great. Little did I know that this was going to become like the biggest viral story of the fall of 2014, be covered in every single newspaper outlet, Al Jazeera, all over the world. Who is this woman? Why is she carrying her mattress, right? Hillary Clinton said that image is going to haunt all of us. Um, Clearly she hit something, right? So she made her private suffering public. She brought it out into the public sphere. She also... Uh, you know, had this large object that people had to help her with. So this idea of carrying the burden, something that we can all fix together, a community and social norm that can be changed if we all participate. It was a really very smart, very smart idea. Um, So I began, uh, you know, looking more deeply into this situation um, after the cover story that I wrote about her, which was on the cover of New York Magazine, that was called A Very Different Kind of Sexual Revolution on Campus. Um, Of course, I quickly learned that this did not start with Emma or her friends at uh, Columbia. Um, This started with, you know, back in 1972 with Title IX. So Title IX was passed, um, was was signed into law by Richard Nixon, right? He actually was trying to sign a statute that um, postponed court orders to segregate schools by busing. So that was his really intention, right? He um, wanted to, to, like to pass that, and he figured he would deal with this as well because what was the harm? So. Title IX says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So no gender discrimination at school if you want our federal funds, right? Which would apply to almost all universities. So we, um, most of us here know that Title IX, of course, applies to sports, right? This idea that women must have the same equipment and same access to facilities as men's sports teams do, which of course they don't really, you know, even today in 2017, but everybody kind of stopped talking about that. You know, it also applies to sexual harassment. Um, a professor, quid pro quo, okay, you're going to get an A if you have sex with me, something like that, or, you know, more kind of complicated forms of harassment. Um, and clearly also, I believe, you know, lends itself very well to sexual assault. Um, a university is a place where people get, go to get educated. It may be some place where as a society, we also go to have a party. We also go to experience, you know, the best that America has to offer and feel really like happy about like just having no responsibilities and like, let's just enjoy ourselves for four years and we'll pay for it later. And you know, just this is the best thing about being an American, but that is not really what you're supposed to be there to do, right? So the idea that a student who is assaulted at college who will likely experience trauma from that assault, who will probably be depressed, probably not be able to concentrate on his or her studies. Probably his or her grades will drop. She might drop out. That denies that person an equal right to education. I think that makes perfect sense, right? Um, and the courts did too. And this started to kind of make its way through. But of course, you know, as we know, Obama was the person who really put his foot down. Now, a lot of this groundwork was laid between, you know, to say Title IX covers sexual assault, universities have to keep their students safe before Obama, but Obama certainly, um, you know, emboldened the Office for Civil Rights, which um, takes care of enforcing this, and um, really pushed things to a new level. So um, I'm just gonna read a couple paragraphs here. Um, Why did Obama do this? For Obama, the father of two teenage girls, combating sexual violence in schools was a priority, and he also had a deep interest in challenging gender stereotypes. He once wrote, when you're the father of two daughters, you become even more aware of how gender stereotypes pervade our society. You see the subtle and not-so-subtle social cues transmitted through culture. You feel the enormous pressure girls are under to look and behave and even think a certain way. This wasn't mere paternalism. Obama also felt the negative effects of gender stereotypes when he grew up without a a dad around. He continued his essay to say, it's easy to absorb all kinds of messages from society about masculinity and come to believe there's a right way and a wrong way to be a man. But as I got older, I realized that my ideas about being a tough guy or a cool guy just weren't me. Life became a lot easier when... I simply started being myself. In the same essay, he called himself a feminist, the first sitting president to do so. So Obama, as I said, really emboldened this office, that Office for Civil Rights, to take charge of the sexual assault issue. And they began putting a lot of rules. They said, look, universities, we like it if you would follow these rules. If you don't, we could take away all your federal funding by the way, um, we probably won't, but we could. So, um, you know, the rules were, were, were made a lot of sense, like figure these cases out quickly, you know, tell everybody what your rules are. I mean, there wasn't anything too nutty in the rules. Um, the one thing that they did that has become very important recently with Betsy DeVos is that they said, we're going to lower the standard of proof for everybody across the board. Um, universities have kind of been a patchwork. Some people would use the preponderance of the evidence standard, which is 51% guilty. You're out of school or for the, you know, accused. Um, Some other people would use something called clear and convincing standard, which was a higher standard. They said we want everybody to use the lower standard. Okay? not only was this historical justice, you know, the fact of the matter is whatever lawyers can say, and I'm certainly not an attorney, When you look at a lot of these cases and you realize how hard it is to prove sexual assault, which doesn't usually involve a gun on college campuses, doesn't involve a knife, doesn't often involve physical evidence, right? Sometimes force is used, sometimes force is not used. When force is even used, you know, rape kits are really great at picking up DNA of strangers. They are okay at getting physical evidence from forcible rapes. So you start looking at how hard it is to get to that extra 1%, and you start realizing it's actually pretty hard, right? So I approve of this, um, the preponderance of the evidence standard, but this has been very, very controversial um, recently. So, Okay, so, you know, That was everything was kind of chugging along. This happened in 2011. Um, you know, the government said you should take care of this (laughs) Universities, university said, yeah, maybe we will. Well, you know, we don't even have the equal like equipment for the women's sports teams, right? So like, we'll get to this later. Um, Government says a lot of things, but actually the students themselves, particularly students on the East Coast, um, Yale, Amherst, Tufts, places like that, began to speak out. And they not only began to speak out, they began to talk to each other, students, survivors. And they said, Obama's got these new rules. You know what? I'm a political science major. I'm pretty pretty aware of these new rules. And I'm looking at what my university is doing on my sexual assault case, and it doesn't look anything like what the rules are. And because they were able to speak to each other because of the internet, since you know so much of our culture is because of the internet, but this really helped, from university to university, um, they were able to really organize. Not only that, they were able to go down to D.C. to speak to legislature, legislators, particularly on the West Coast. There's been a very organized effort to reach out to the media. Right. So young activists not only Googled, well, who else is a student activist out there? I mean, who else is I'm sorry, who else is a student survivor out there? Is there an essay in the UC Santa Barbara newspaper, campus newspaper in 2012 or 13 that this student is saying she's a survivor and her university didn't treat her right? Well, maybe I should drop her an email. Maybe she'd like to get involved in our organization. Maybe she would even like to speak to somebody at the L.A. Times about what happened to her. I could organize that, right? It only takes like one DM on Twitter to that LA Times reporter uh, to get a story about college sexual assault in the newspaper because college sexual assault is a great story for the news, right? It bleeds, it leads. They may have made it sound much more violent than it was in certain cases. That is not to say that I don't approve of changes in consent, and that I do not think that coercive sex can include all manner of coercion. I also support a yes means yes standard, but I do think some of the early stories that got a lot of attention about the violence were not really about violence, they were about consent. So as this, so you know, this kind of fed into Emma's moment, right, in 2014. People started talking about like, well, what can we really do to change this situation on campus? We've got girls coming out and boys with their real names, telling their stories, bravely standing in front of news banks of cameras, telling their stories to the world. We have got to do something, right? I mean, this is kind of what the universities were thinking, and they were madly changing all of the bureaucratic stuff that they could, um, some of which was helpful and some of which was not. And um, you know, people like me were starting to say, like, well, let's talk about like, you know, all the gradations of the scenarios. And it's like, really get into it and try to figure out like, what this really means for our society. And then what happened at the end of 2014? something happened that pretty much completely derailed the whole situation. And that was the story, um, Rolling Stone story of rape at UVA. So Rolling Stone published a story, um, about a seven person gang rape at a fraternity. It was a fraternity pledge ritual. It was implied. Um, The girl walked up into a room, she was pushed into a glass table, the table shattered beneath her, Um, she was violently raped by these men, she ran outside afterwards, shoeless, bloodied, and saw her two friends, and her friends basically said, like, well, we're not going to help you, we're not going to take you to the hospital or anything, because we don't want to be cut out of frat parties, right? So when this story came out, you know, there were massive rallies at UVA. The writer was on PBS NewsHour. You know, there was a huge outcry. The president of UVA told the Greek system of UVA that it couldn't have any more social events for the rest of the semester, and they, quote, needed to do some serious thinking about what their role has been and what is going to continue to be on the campus. So as probably most people in this room know, that story ended up not being true. Right. It was an unbelievable story because it was actually kind of unbelievable. Wasn't a gang rape frat pledge ritual. Right. Seven men, conscious victim. That's not where we should have been going with this. Unfortunately, that really became the beginning of the end for this movement. So what we've been watching since 2015, is kind of the death of the campus anti-rape movement, right? And I'm not saying that something like the news break that's happened around Harvey Weinstein or Roger Ailes or uh, Bill O'Reilly or Bill Cosby. Those we are as a nation grappling with the question of what do we do about these predators in our midst, right? But the college sexual assault problem has kind of gone on a straight downslope since the UVA story. So why am I saying that? Because basically what happened after UVA is the fraternities started organizing. And you know what they think? They think Title IX doesn't have anything to do with sexual assault. They would like universities to think that, too they think universities shouldn't be involved in these cases at all. So the, the, the fraternity that was mentioned, Phi Psi, in the UVA story, plus a number of other fraternities began lobbying in Washington. Phi Psi eventually dropped out. But they hired Trent Lott, um, Trent Lott was very happy to be their lobbyist. He said he would do it for a discount of $25,000 a month um, as a deference to the brotherhood, because he himself is a frat brother, frat alum. And they began um, getting networking, not only with libertarian attorneys, conservative attorneys, religious rights supporters. Remember, religious institutions have also are a little bit like Title IX sex, where's the sex part? Sexual assault, sex. No, we're not interested. We're not interested in that. A, maybe our students are absent until marriage. B, I have to deal with this sexual assault victim who's going to come in here and tell me that she was drinking and she's not supposed to because of the honor code, but then I'm not supposed to punish her because she was drinking? I don't like that, right? I don't like Obama coming in here at all into my university and trying to get involved with. My students, so they really haven't supported it. So that group became stronger and stronger and stronger. And they also became stronger because it turned out there were some problems with the campus courts and there were some boys who were being railroaded. And whether they were railroaded or not, the parents of the boys who were being expelled started to become a pretty massive political force. And guess what? They met each other through the internet. They met each other through the comments sections of those articles, that all those articles that we read about UC Santa Barbara and their problem with rape, down in the comments sections there were people talking about how this wasn't really true and they were leaving their email addresses. And those parents started to talk to each other and they started to organize. And so now they had something very different to say, right? They weren't interested in my like gradations of consent and what is violence, what is not, and how do we expand consent for a new generation? They had something very different to say. So this is what they had to say. This is a witch hunt, no different than the Salem witch trials or McCarthyism. A fear has been sold to the country that every man is a potential rapist. This is now an American truth. Just the way communists infiltrating and taking over our country was a truth of McCarthyism. For our American boys today, it's guilty before innocent. So, you know, the the students that I interviewed at Columbia and other radical students that I, progressive students that I um, interviewed like to call themselves the witches sometimes, right? They not only like kind of possessed the sorcery to upend societal orders, but they were also unfairly victimized. Now this is what, so Yale expelled a boy who was basketball captain for sexual misconduct. He um, was about to win like the first NCAA tournament that Yale was going to win in 54 years. So this was a big deal, right? So his high school coach, wrote a piece about his protege Um, and he compared him to the boy, he compared his student to the man, to a man who was killed for witchcraft during the purges in Salem. Jack, who's this boy, was pressed to death, forced just like this man in Salem, forced to lie under large wooden boards while rocks and boulders were piled on, to squeeze the life out of him. The boy I coached is the victim of a Title IX witch hunt where his dreams, reputation, and future employment are being pressed out of him with the same cowardly, irrational piety shown by those Puritan zealots of an earlier New England. So you don't really get much like more intense rhetorically than this, right? <laughs> so, you know, my book is basically kind of gonzo reportage, right? I met all these people. I also went to a lot of college campuses. I am a Gen X mother of two, quite elderly, but I don't look that old. So I was able to kind of like blend in like a weird older sister who's just like kind of standing in the corner and like trying to, you know, talk to kids about sex in a really like weird way. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I... I became very interested in in basically the question that I that I asked before, which is like, is a university like a workplace? Should there be no sexual harassment or sexual assault within that institution? How do we deal with that if the people actually live at the university? So they have a private life also at the university, right? Um, Is it then akin to a workplace? Um, You know, certainly with Harvey Weinstein, I think we all understand that part of what is so grotesque, in addition to the just the grotesqueness of the stories, is that there was a power differential here that was pretty insane, right? Um, You know, there, you have actresses who their whole life is about getting this person to have faith in them. And then he's saying, well, okay. like, you can have faith with, in me as long as, like, I can be in my bathrobe and you have this lotion and, like, you do whatever it is to me. Right? I think we can all understand that. Um, what I think can be a little bit more complicated to understand is how, um, how misogynistic universities themselves are. How misogynistic the organization of universities are. Um, And how misogynistic our culture is and the way that we're teaching boys kind of the wrong lessons about consensual sex. Um, So, you know, in the book I talk a lot about Planet College and what is Planet College. Um, It's a planet unlike planet Earth. Here, few are surprised if a girl gets her butt grabbed at a frat party, but if someone grabbed my butt on the sidewalk in my neighborhood, I would be outraged. It's a planet on which a girl who passes out in a frat basement isn't brought a glass of water with a straw, as she would be at a mall or an airport, but has a decent chance of being poked and prodded and jeered at by her classmates who draw penises on her face with magic marker. It's a planet on which a dorm mate, with whom one has a nodding acquaintance might slither into one's bedroom and attempt a, hooking, a hookup with one's sleeping body. This happened to me in school and to some of my friends, too. The response has long been not to call 911, 9- but rather to push the other student off and go back to sleep." So again, I'm really interested in the, like, what is the whole scope of non-consensual behavior that's happening on college campuses. Um, I think. Having looked at hundreds of these cases, the UVA case is really an exception. The case where. A student makes up a story out of full, whole cloth, right? That is an exception. Um. I would even go as far to say, I believe that the boys who are being unfairly punished in campus courts are also an exception. I think they're there, but I think they're an exception. To me, um, this issue is about changing social norms. And it's about group rights. It's about the rights of students to go to college and get an equal education. It's about the rights of women to have gender parity with men in the bedroom, which is a place that's been really hard to get gender parity. So the group that I was talking about before, not only the frats, but the libertarian lawyers and the conservatives and the religious, um, right, you know, they just don't agree with that. Um, First of all, I think they don't agree because, you know, the kind of Donald Trump idea of boys will be boys and how bad is this stuff really and why are you making a mountain out of a molehill, you snowflakes, get out of my face. But I also think that when you hear people say, well, why we can't live in a country where one boy who is innocent is punished like we can't live in a country like that. I think we have to think about this like. As kind of harsh as this sounds like this is about group rights and societal norm change, and there may be some boys who are caught in this time of transition. Um, I support lower punishments for some of those boys. I don't think that everybody needs to be expelled. But I do believe that the court should stay up in the campuses, um, that a yes means yes standard will get us further. Um, As probably some of you in this room know that since um, the downslope I was talking about really kind of like crashed (laughs) um, about a month ago when Betsy DeVos and her deputy Candace Jackson um, not only gave an interview to the New York Times saying they believe that 90% of the cases are bogus, um, they're either quote, we are both drunk, or um, that we were going out and there was something about that last night of us sleeping together that wasn't, just, just wasn't quite right. Um, Candace Jackson also added that she was outraged that in most of these cases, there was not even an allegation that the young man overrode the will of a young woman. Will being, of course, code for, did the woman actually bite or kick or hit or scream? Because if the woman didn't do that, maybe that wasn't great, right? So these are people who are looking at this from, like, a really yesteryear standpoint. And they, um, you know, Jackson, I'll just introduce Kenneth Jackson because she's Pepperdine grad. Um, she's best known as the attorney who accompanied the three women, um, who accused Bill Clinton of assault to the debate between Trump and Hillary, where Trump kind of, like, walked around after her. Um, she sat in the front row with them, so she's kind of like a conservative Gloria Allred. Um, she writes for Infowars. She's the head of the Office for Civil Rights right now. Um... She also calls herself a feminist, she calls herself a libertarian feminist. She's pro-life, she's conservative Christian, she's also openly gay. She used to say she was a domestic abuse survivor, she's more recently started saying she's a rape survivor. We didn't get that story yet. Her feminism involves respecting individual women rather than cutting deals for women as a special interest group, which she believes so often goes along with the liberal agenda she abhors. Her contempt for the Clintons is justified on this basis. About Bill's alleged assaults, she said, Bill believed himself to be in power and helping women as a group. And it just didn't seem to matter that much if he had to use and abuse a few individual women along the way. One might find this persuasive except Jackson is also a rabid defender of rape victims only when the offender is a liberal. She calls the dozen odd women who have accused Trump of sexual assault, quote, fake victims. So, we're in a really strange place here, right? Um, I would just try to like leave this on like, maybe kind of a slightly better note, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, okay, we're not going to have the government enforcing any rules on campus, right? The federal government, that's clear. I mean, I'm sure, you know, in California, you guys know more about this than I do, but you know, something's going to happen. But. Where we are on campus right now is is good. It's We're getting to a good place. Not only are young students looking at Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie this week and saying, you know what, wow, they're not ashamed. Why would I ever be ashamed if something happened to me? You know, they're coming out, they're saying what really happened. But the watchword on campus also, partially because universities are pretty sick of this sexual violence topic, right? Like they're really like, okay, we would, we dealt with that PR disaster, right? let us Is that over yet? Because we'd really like it to be over. But what they're starting to focus on is consent, the meaning of consent. As I've made clear, I actually support this. There are other people who think this is kind of a milk toasty way of looking at things. Um, consent is a really interesting kind of zeitgeisty word that probably all of us have a different definition of. But it's interesting and people are pondering it and sexual consent is a very hard thing to figure out. And, Establishing a new consensus around it is going to be hard, but I guarantee you that students are starting to think about it because I have this poll um, from the Washington Post-Kaiser Family Foundation of 1,000 students. So they were asked, do you think if a person does this, it establishes consent for more sexual activity? Nods in agreement. Only half say yes. Takes off their own clothes. Half say yes. Gets a condom, 40%. So older people know, gets a condom is like, I mean, consent, done. Uh, Engages in foreplay such as kissing or touching. So first base, does first or second or third base mean we're going all the way? Only 22% say yes. Does not say no. So only 18% of these thousand college students agreed with that. So they're agreeing with a yes means yes standard. These aren't even college students in California. These are just college students. Because remember, it's not only in California. It's in multiple states. It's in all the Ivy Leagues. It's in many of the state institutions. Yes means yes is the new standard. So the question for me is, when is it going to be the standard for um, society at large? (laughs) I think we went, went a little, like back now that the whole world is on fire we're not like quite there where we're talking about affirmative consent for society (laughs) like we're trying to just like stop nuclear war so um (laughs) but i do want to just share in conclusion one um quote from a woman who went to syracuse university who i talked to about yes means yes and consent and she was very open that she had slept with a lot of different guys on campus and she said to me i've never felt scared with a guy i've definitely felt pressured My problem has always been that I didn't know how to say no. I didn't know when I wanted to say no, and I didn't know how to. And I felt bad saying no, which is so stupid. I guess I should say that it wasn't even like I wanted to say no. It's just that I didn't want to say yes. It's not like I was totally opposed, but I was thinking I don't want him to think I'm not interested at all, but I'm not in the mood and I'm kind of drunk. Let's just get it over with, because I'd really rather be watching TV. (laughs) So older people may say, like, I know exactly what you're talking about. But (laughs) we definitely don't want, like, 19-year-olds to think about sex this way. Do we really? You know, can't we do a little bit better for them? So that's what I am hoping for. Um, And, yeah, that's my speech. So thank you guys so much for coming. (laughs) Hi, I'm Jim Thompson. Uh, You began your reportage in New York City and with Emma Solkowitz. Did it cause difficulties for you when her case against Columbia more or less collapsed? There were the friendly texts after Mm -hmm. the supposed assault. There was the fact that Columbia settled a law case against uh, the person that she accused. In effect, in other words... I I, I agree with the gist of what you're trying to establish, but I think you probably picked a wrong case to begin with. I'm not going to, you know, stand here and say exactly what you said because I don't actually think that we know for sure her case collapsed. Remember, they never believed her to begin with. Columbia never found him responsible, which is why she was carrying the mattress. So I think... Okay, I think a it's important to remember there were three other people accusing him. So he was actually they were not of sexual assault. One was in an emotionally abusive relationship. One was a groping case. Um, Another one was was the person was found not to be um, credible. So the groping case, they did find him. um, Responsible. But the case didn't proceed, you know, it's all like super complicated, kind of in the winds of time kind of stuff. So I think that what we can say about Emma's case is that it's a mystery. It is definitely true that there's some damning text messages out there. Um, It's also true that there are damning text messages in a lot of these cases because there's a lot of flirtation going on over text beforehand. There's also, you know, Emma's defense for why there were text messages later saying, uh i love you which does seem to be an unfortunate uh phrase but saying i feel we haven't had a emma paul's chill sesh you know her explanation was i really didn't get how this worked at the beginning i thought i should just talk to him and tell him what i felt and then you know maybe he would apologize or something would happen i didn't know that that's not the way you deal with it and look i have to tell you that's what a lot of women do a lot of women reach out the next day and say, like, hey, kind of had fun. Something wasn't so great. Could we talk? Could we get together? Um, So. It's true that this would have all been a lot (laughs) easier for me (laughs) if that hadn't come out, but I also do admit all that in the book. I try to grapple with that in the book, Um, and I try to explain that, you know, in a case like that, where it is essentially a mystery to me, um, looking at the evidence um, and realizing she doesn't have a lot of evidence, that you know, I feel as a political choice, I support her. You know, it's the believe women thing. I think just saying believe women kind of doesn't really solve this issue. But I also, in a case where it's a toss-up, I am going to believe the woman. So yeah. Name is Kenneth O'Brien. Uh, so, Michelle Goldberg, I tried to figure it out. I couldn't. Can you explain? I'm trying not to talk about this, but, you know, I um, received a very erroneous uh, review in The Times, um, which was a little bit baffling, since The Times is usually quite good at um, being factually correct. Um, but uh, they had to publish an enormous correction, um, the work that's in this book is solid, and they uh, report. They wrote that she incorrect. She referred incorrectly to my reporting on the issues. Um, I think that it was a situation of um, somebody having some information and not the whole picture, um, and jumping to conclusions. And unfortunately, I think that this is an issue. Sexual assault on campus is like hot button in in the most literal sense of the word, like people flip out about it and will tell you, I cannot tell you how many parties I've been to where I've been cornered by somebody who's told me like I'm totally wrong about this or I'm totally right about this or I should hear what their story is because their story is the only one that really matters and blah, 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 blah. So it is like one of those things where you really need to deal with your preconceptions and yeah, she didn't deal with her preconceptions. My name is Kim, and thank you. I really appreciate your conversation. Thank you. I'm just wondering if college is too late. I mean, shouldn't we be talking about this to kids in high school? And the euphemisms that they're using now, they're calling it hooking up. Mm -hmm. Um, When my kid came home and she was talking about kids hooking up, I'm like, no, they're having sex. And we need to talk about if you have sex with a lot of people, that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so aren't we waiting too late if we're trying to talk about changing the norms in college? I do think that hooking up does refer to, like, non-penetrative stuff. Also, one really weird thing that I try to grapple with a little bit in the book is, of course, that, like, kids are having less sex than they ever, well, not ever, but than they have in, like, years because all kids are on their phones all the time which is just like not conducive to hooking up so there's actually like the beginning of a decline um I think that you're right and I think that California is doing that right now right they're looking at younger kids and how to teach consent and how to have sex not just be like about like gross pictures of STDs and bananas and condoms and about respect and consent, sexual respect, right? Um, I think that college is, you know, yes, in a perfect world, this would never have happened at college, and we would have seeded it for kids who are like 10 years old right now. And then by the time they got to college, they would have understood what the score was. but, you know, Obama saw a problem. He saw the data that showed that there was a significant problem here, and he took, like, kind of decisive action there. Um, and it's been kind of a mess. Like, let's not pretend. The last few years have been really messy. But I think the point is getting across. Like, Harvey Weinstein is being unmasked today in 2017, even though in, in 1997, when I worked in New York Magazine as an assistant, I knew those stories. So. You know, it's not as though I kept the secret, but like if I went to my editor and said, hey, I want to do a story about Harvey Weinstein and his sexual assault escapades, she would be like, what? How are you going to even how are you going to print that? And is not a private matter. Right. So a lot of interest there was over the years, a lot of interest in when Disney owned Miramax, where were the settlements coming from? Who was paying those settlements? Journalists did look into that. But he paid the settlement. So it was a private matter, you know? So there the the culture has changed to the point where like the New York Times will put its best reporters on that. I wanted to ask you about Rolling Stone and Sabrina Eardley. And mm-hmm. I guess my question is sort of two part. Like, was she was up until that point had such an incredible reputation and did such great work. So was yeah. there a part of you as a reporter that was like oh, my God, like, slippery is like that, you know, too, yeah. sort of too hot to touch. But And also, how do you reconcile this idea um, in your reporting of staying objective and also being sensitive to um, to women and to people who may have experienced sexual assault? In my initial thought upon reading her story, was like, oh, my God, is she going to write a book about this? Because I just sold a book about this. There can't be, like, two Rolling Stone reporters, female reporters, who are writing a book about this. Um, I mean, I... Completely you know, from the vantage point that I'm at right now after looking at the cases and being like no the gang rape seven-person Frat ritual conscious woman like it doesn't add up. Actually um, I would From what I know now I would have been able to identify it but at that time I did not identify it and really a lot of people didn't um I was careful to talk to either the other party, right, in my book, or disclose that I didn't. Um, which is really what she needed to do, you know, in her, I mean, she made multiple journalistic errors, but the one, the main one was that she presented this as though it was fact, when in, indeed she hadn't checked any of it. So, um, of course, if, you know, if she had presented it as just one person's story, she wasn't going to get on the PBS NewsHour. So there was like a blockbuster kind of, a desire to have a blockbuster story and protect that blockbuster story um I mean I definitely lost a lot of sleep a lot of nights about like how was I going to be sensitive to people who had trusted me with their stories you know um I I think that you know the journalist in me says like if you show somebody the truth that's the best favor you can do for somebody so you know What else can you say? But like the human being in me, like definitely tried as hard as possible to um, show people, you know, the book is really kaleidoscopic and it really shows like this is this person's story. You know, we don't need to now get like the reverse from the partner in each case. It would almost be impossible. There's like 60, you know, various stories of sexual assault in here. So let's hear what the person has to say and really listen, you know, to what they feel and what they're saying from their heart, you know. And in some cases we can look at the, you know, objective. I mean, objectivity is really hard in sex and sexual assault to begin with. Like, so, yeah, I don't know. It was hard. Hi, my name is Heidi, and I'm the mother of a son who's on a college campus right now Mm -hmm. in Chicago, and I know that each year he and all of the students have to undergo some sort of an online training program on the topic of consent, and I'm Mm -hmm. curious to know how are these programs developed? Is there any continuity between institutions in the providers of the training program? Is it updated, and does it evolve over time, and do you have any suggestions for reading authors podcasts anything that would help supplement complement that training that they provide that i could recommend to him and Mm -hmm. to his friends well i think the situation in terms of these webinars and like orientation programs and all that is like a total mess um you know the it's legislated so each university needs to do it but um it's gold rush and like anybody who has any sort of program like Alcohol awareness, domestic violence, whatever. It's just like, how do we make a program about this? Because now we can make a program about this. So, you know, the University of Kentucky um, has a program called Green Dot, and the University of New Hampshire has a program called Bringing in the Bystander, and those have kind of been tested and are good. And there's a, they're at a lot of universities of this idea of, like, bystander education. Everybody should be a good bystander. Let's all, like say something, if we see a guy who's really drunk and taking this girl home, like, let's try to intercede and see what's happening. Um, Personally, I'm much more interested in, like, self-defense for women, because, you know, there are particular kinds of self-defense that have been proven to work much, much better than that kind of bystander idea. Um, And those kinds of self-defense are, you know, really for women. I mean, look, boys are also victimized, (laughs) you know, but they're not about... They're not about re-educating the uh, potential perpetrator. They're about like risk reduction. So it's like, it's not only like here's some physical moves, it's also like how do you remove yourself from the situation before it happens? How do you identify the people who are the most likely to be the perpetrator? And like, you know what they're finding? The most likely ones are the guys who are very misogynistic, who interrupt women, who insist on paying for dinner, who make sexualized jokes in non-sexual situations and make everybody feel really uncomfortable. And I think for like guys on campus, it's kind of important to say like, that's a social norm that I can change too, I can make sure that that guy in my group of friends doesn't just like get a high five every time he says something like offensive you know, that actually realize that that guy, that there may actually be, like, more of a correlation here between college guys who hold these misogynistic beliefs and the ones who do actually assault. I'm curious what you think about um, the role of institutions and in particular... Um, you know, fraternities and athletic teams and all the money that comes in that's related to both of those two that prevents um, what I would say are sort of real or better solutions Mm -mm. to the epidemic of sexual assault. I don't agree um, with the hunting ground point of view that universities are just absolutely terrible at this and um, are kind of institutionally interested in punishing survivors, um, I think that university would have to have a PR death wish at this point to do that. What I do think is true is two things. So, yes, I think you're right. I think, first of all, frats have to go, like unquestionably. The frats are supporting um, a culture on campus where the universities don't want the liability for the drinking so they said, well, if you have a keg in your dorm, something real bad's gonna happen to you. Well, where does the keg go? It goes to like an unsupervised basement of a frat house. And not all frats are bad for sure, but you know, if we're dealing with um, combating like these kind of toxic gender norms, why you would have the social life on campus controlled by single-gender institutions just makes it just makes no sense. Um, and a lot of cases, anecdotally, are coming. Um, not necessarily at the frat house, but they're coming after the frat party, right? Because people are just so out of control of coming out of this very out of control atmosphere. Um, and so I think that's true. I think that while what I said about the universities, I believe, which is that I think universities are taking this really seriously. I think they should be better trained. I think we should put more energy into them. The criminal justice system is not the answer here. Um, I do think that where athletics is concerned, like I don't really know what to say. I mean, it's, it's very clear that the athletic departments in many institutions are very corrupt. Um, and, you know, anything that is, like what we were discussing with Emma before, some flirtatious text messages between a freshman girl and a football player beforehand, or even maybe consensual sex, and then two other football players come in and it turns into a non-consensual situation. Anything that they can get on the girl, basically, they're going to use to um, tell the university president that you know their players did nothing wrong and. You know, it's clear that university presidents are being consulted on important football players, on trustees' sons, on, you know, like big-time donor kids. Like, there, you know, there's not that much protection for just a regular guy who commits an assault on campus, but there's a lot of protection if you're an important person to the institution. So I feel like the focus should be on, like, More transparency in the cases, you know, it's really hard because of federal privacy regulations, and also it's, like, you don't want to, like, show everybody all this stuff because it is kind of private, you know? Um, But, you know, making sure the universities are doing the right thing, but also this, like, kind of blanket, like, universities are the worst, look at all of their federal investigations, tactically is not doing anything good for anybody. It's all it's doing is, if you believe, as I do, that, we should deal with this on campus It's just allowing Betsy DeVos to get up in front of America and say, I'm doing this because the university system has failed survivors, you know, so. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, Before we close tonight, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I want to thank our friends the Japanese American National Museum for bringing us into their beautiful space. We also want to thank all of you for joining us tonight. And we invite you to please stick around for the reception, where you can continue this conversation over beer, wine, water with each other and with (laughs) Vanessa. We'll also have a copy of Blurred Lines for sale And finally, of course, let's give a big hand to Vanessa for sharing your time. Thank you guys. Thanks so much.